We're just starting a series on Christian practice, and we're going to, over the next few weeks, cover a, a few aspects of the Christian life. So that'll be things like communion, baptism, confession, prayer, um, you know, these things that are sort of normal part of the Christian life, but it's also quite easy to kind of go through the motions and not really understand or engage with, with what's going on and the full meaning behind them. Um, for, you know, for example, I grew up in church, I've been attending reasonably regularly since my late 17, 18 year old, something like that. Um, you know, so going along for over 10 years and some of these things I'm only just really starting to understand now as I dig into them deeper. Um, so yeah, we're going to make this opportunity to unpack some of these a bit more for you. So this is great if you're a new believer and you're not sure about some of these weird things that we get up to, uh, but it's also great if you've been coming to church for a long time, I'm sure you'll learn something as well. I remember years ago at Holy Trinity, the church I previously went to, um, some of you will have been there before, it's, it's a lot more formal Anglican service than what we run here, and I remember one time this old guy came along for the first time and he sat next to me, and either he hadn't been to church or he hadn't been to a, a formal church before, and it was about three or four times throughout the service, he sort of prodded me and he said, what are, what are they doing here, what does this mean? And it was, it was, quite, it was quite eye-opening for me for, for two reasons. The first of all is it made me realise how little I knew that I couldn't actually explain what was going on to someone who didn't understand it. You, you really have to... That's, that's the great thing about preparing sermons. If, if I'm going to talk to you for 20 minutes about baptism, I have to actually dig into it and understand it. You know? So it's, it's quite a good opportunity to actually understand what we believe enough to share it. And this, the second thing I learned from this guy asking these questions is that, like, as Christians, we, we do some weird things, like... You know, at this church service, we're lining up for communion and we're, you know, it's, it's this airy silence. We're going up, having bread and wine. If, if you've not been to church before, that's a weird thing. Um, you know, passing the peace, that was a very weird, all of a sudden, you know, shaking hands and hugging people next to you. So, yeah, some of these practices are very, very strange. You know, a confession, you know, a call and response, that something that all these people in the room seem to know automatically what to say and do. But if you haven't seen it before, it's, it's very strange. It also reminds me of a time at Parachute, the big music festival. I had a friend of mine from high school join me one year, and, and he wasn't a churchgoer, and came along to the morning church service, and they, they did a, a pass-the-peace time, and he was horrified that all of a sudden there's all these strangers swarming him, trying to give him a hug, and he, for a, you know, a 15-year-old boy from Fraser, that, that's not what you do. <laughs> he looked very white and sheepish. And, yeah. But yeah, it's just quite interesting to know that some of the things we get up to are very strange to the rest of the world. So today I'm going to be focusing on baptism, and I want to start by reading just a couple of passages from the New Testament, just to set the scene. And obviously this is a massive topic, so I'm sort of cherry-picking a few passages to, to shape this sermon. I don't want to be here too long, you'll get sick of me. So to start with, we've got this part in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then jumping forward to Acts chapter 2, and this is Peter, after he's shared the gospel and what Jesus has done to, to a group of people. And when the people had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So just from those two readings, you might be kind of a little bit surprised to see that baptism isn't really posed as a suggestion. You know, it's, it's commanded by Jesus in that great commission to, to go and make disciples and baptise them. Now, it's, it's quite black and white there. It's not, it's not a suggestion. And again, with, with Peter, it's an expectation that the response to hearing the gospel and believing it and being convicted by it is to repent and be baptised. That's how Peter instructs people to respond. So, yeah, baptism is quite a can of worms, and it's a very big topic. So to keep me on track, I'm going to just focus on three areas. First of all, what, what is baptism? Second of all, what does it do? And then third of all, who should get baptised? And there'll be plenty of controversy in each of those three, so don't worry. <laughs> so first of all, what is baptism? You know, the, the first Christians were baptised by you know, full immersion, so that's being fully submerged in water. And you know, the practice of pouring or sprinkling that we sometimes see today, that, that popped up later in the second century and didn't become widespread until a lot later. However, the practice of baptism in Scripture points to being fully submerged. Later in church history, we see instructions about baptism that, that sort of outline, ideally it should be in running water, like a, a river or a stream. And they say, if you can't do that, then a tub is fine. If you can't do that, pouring on water is fine. It's kind of a hierarchy of the ideal, and we'll get into that shortly. But sticking to the first instance in the Bible, we would see people being fully submerged in water. So if we were to observe a baptism, what would we see? We'd see someone either standing or kneeling in in a body of water, and then someone else who would usually be a church leader or another Christian would, would be supporting them. And usually there'd be some kind of statement of faith. You know, do you believe Jesus has died for your sins? Something like that, summarising the gospel and the faith, the faith that they are professing. They would then be lowered under the water while the person says, I baptise you in the name of Jesus, or sometimes they'd say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or in the name of the Lord, something like that. Now, each church has some slight variations to the ceremony, but, but generally speaking, that's, that's what you would observe with your eyes if you went along to a, a Christian baptism. Outwardly, that's what we would see. But the, the more important part is the meaning behind this. Um, a, a more churchy response to what is baptism, I don't normally like churchy answers, but this one was actually quite good, is that it, it's a new covenant sacrament. And by sacrament, they mean a, a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth. And the other sacrament commanded in Scripture is communion, which we'll unpack in a few weeks' time. So, so when I get baptised... I am confessing that I am one with Christ. I am publicly saying, Jesus did all that is necessary for my salvation there on the cross. I am saying, I believe this in my heart. Now I am expressing it outwardly in the way that he commanded. You know, there's, a, there's a trend in more recent times that a lot of churches do, would do like altar calls and a, like a sinner's prayer to lead you through once you respond to the gospel. Um, basically, someone you know, hears the gospel story and they're com- convicted and they, you know, they turn from their sins and turn to God. And they'll, they'll say a prayer along the lines of, you know, God, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. Um, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you that I'm united with you. Something along those lines. And those words are awesome, they're great words, and it's not a bad thing to do. But it's interesting to note that that's not the way that Jesus calls us to respond to the gospel. You know, some people want to you know, shout it from the mountaintops, or you know, wear a cross necklace, or get a tattoo, or whatever it is people want to do these days. That's fine. 
but the response that we are called to do is actually to be baptised. I have a feeling my pages have fallen out of order, so we'll just try and wing this one. <laughs> um, another, a reading, so the, the more important part is the meaning behind baptism. And if we dig into Romans chapter 6, again, I could spend a whole year in Romans, and I'm not going to do that. So just cherry-picking this part here where he's explaining baptism and the meaning behind it. He says, don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we, may, we too may have a new life. We're baptised into Christ Jesus. You know, when we're baptised, we're identifying our life with Jesus, and there's a commitment there to, to live differently, to live a life in which we walk with Jesus. And, and that doesn't mean we always get it right, that, or that we'll never screw up again, but it's a commitment to walking with God, continuing to learn, to grow, and to allow him to refine us. You know, another aspect of baptism is that we're aligning ourselves with Christ, is the impact that this should have on our personal identities and the unity of the church. You know, today in our modern you know, Western culture, there's so much focus on our identity and individualism. You know, these days, there's so much controversy and drama around you know, race and gender. But as Christians, these things are, are secondary, you know, almost to the point that they're not important. Not quite, but almost. Um, you know, I, I would be labelled as a white male, and that's true to some extent. But as a Christian, technically, I should be a Christian who happens to be a white male. You know, like our identity, first and foremost, is Christian. After that is your gender, your race, your, whether you're a teacher or a doctor, you're a mother or a father, whatever else. Those are all secondary. They're all good things, but they're secondary. You know, there's admirable, admirable things to pursue in each of those areas. You know, what, what does it mean to be a man or a woman, a father, a mother, a teacher, a doctor? You know, all these things are great to develop in and learn in, but primarily if we're not developing in Christ and our Christian identity in those things are not going to be ideal. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is addressing that problem with believers that aren't getting along so well. And he's saying, you know, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. You know, this idea that whatever baggage and background we come with, whatever personal identities we come from, we should be united in Christ. So, so what is baptism? We've got that it's a new covenant sacrament, a, a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth, and that it's a, a public declaration of faith in Jesus and what he has done and promised. You know, after making a statement of faith, you know, and being submerged into the water to the words of you know, being baptised in the name of Jesus, you are publicly declaring your belief in the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, and that you're looking forward to the resurrection to come. So the second question, what does it do? And I was tempted to say nothing, but that doesn't, doesn't feel quite right. It, it, almost, it, it feels like the wrong question to ask, even though I'm the one who asked it. 
but I, I think it's better addressed by listing what it doesn't do, because I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes through. Um, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about baptism, and I think that comes from kind of like our human tendency to want everything to be tidy and put in a box and make sense to us. And sometimes with the Bible, I don't think we're smart enough to do that. So, so what we've covered so far is that it's a command and an expectation. And secondly, that it's a symbolically identifying the believer with Jesus. So, so usually our thought process goes, if it's commanded and expected that believers must be baptised, then it must be pretty important. And you'd say, yeah, sure. And, and what can flow from that line of thinking is that baptism is then what saves us. It's, it's essential for salvation, and, and that is not the case. Um, some people teach that, that baptism is what cleanses us from original sin, and, and I don't believe that this is true. But the position is tempting to believe when it seems so black and white with this command and expectation to be baptised. You can understand the conversation if someone says, you know, Jesus commands us to be baptised. And you'd say, yes, therefore it must be important. Does baptism save us? No. Then I don't really need to be baptised. But yes, you do. <laughs> you see what I mean? I don't, know. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or whatever it is, but for us, if it's a command and essential I don't know, it must be life or death, or I don't know. We don't like non-essential commands, but we should be baptised out of obedience. Last year during our series in Genesis, I spoke on the covenant of circumcision. Somehow I drew that short straw. <laughs> but it was actually very insightful for me, um, and it relates a lot to this, this topic of baptism. You know, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, where the people of God were told to circumcise the males. You know, that was their part to do in the covenant in response to what God had already promised them. He had promised to Abraham's descendants that he would turn them into a great nation, promising land, you know, eternal rule through his offspring, all those good things. And, and if you recall, God's part of that came first. God approached Abraham and made those promises before commanding circumcision. And, and the symbolism of that circumcision was tied, you know, it's tied to the reproductive organ as a reminder that the promise was for their offspring to come. You know, they, they were daily living with this promise of what was to happen. It was a reminder that there was something wrong with the flesh that needed to be cut away and ultimately pointing to a spiritual change that needed to happen. As Jeremiah said, you know, circumcise your hearts. And then after Jesus, in the New Testament, the sign of circumcision is replaced with a different sign, the, the sign of baptism. In Colossians 2, it builds on the imagery of circumcision, you know, that idea that part of you had to be cut away and to die, and it links it with baptism in this a really weird segue. You know, he says that our old self was put off when we were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And, you know, like, from a practical observation, circumcision and baptism, if, if you were, not that you go to a circumcision ceremony, but if you were to observe both of those things, there's no connection, right? in the outward, what we see. But the meaning behind them is, is the connection. And we looked at these sort of comparisons of circumcision and baptism. And some of the, the, you know, the, some of the similarities there is that you know, part of you needs to be cut away and to die. That, you know, that sinful flesh dies and you're raised with Christ. Um, and it, you know, both of those things are covenants of grace. So the old covenant, the sign or the ritual was circumcision, and the new covenant was baptism. And the purpose in the old covenant, purpose of both, was to remind them of the covenant. So the old one was to remind them of what God has promised, what's to come. Then the new covenant, we are reminded what God has done through Jesus. 
and a little bit of what's to come with resurrection too. The reminder that God is gracious and that you're undeserving applies to both. In the New Covenant, we're reminded that we are forgiven, that our sin is left in the grave, that we are spotless before God when we approach him. And that, that symbolism in the Old Covenant, that we're, you know, we're born in sin, that part of you needs to be cut away and die, that we need a new heart. And again, in the New Covenant, that we're partaking in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that our sinful nature is left in the grave. So in baptism, the picture is Jesus taking us into the grave with him, you know, all our sin, and then raising from the grave, leaving our sinful flesh in the grave, raised as a new creation. So Jesus has done spiritually what that ritual of circumcision pointed to physically. Circumcision was just a shadow of what was to follow. And circumcision pointed, you know, it pointed forward to what God was going to do for his people. And baptism reminds us, pointing back to what Jesus did at the cross. Both of these rituals don't actually do anything in, in the physical acts themselves. You know, they're symbols of what God has done. And, and the awesome thing about both of these is that you can't boast in either of them. And we, we saw in that, that Genesis series that at the time of Jesus, the Jews kind of got a bit, they were boasting. They you know, said, we are members of the circumcision. And say, so, you know, you're hanging out with the uncircumcised. A very weird, very weird thing to boast in, I believe. Uh, but, but also the, the symbolism behind it also says, I'm not good enough. You know, it, it's, a, it's a symbol of grace that God has, has promised these things to you despite the fact that you're not worthy of them. And it's the same with baptism. We can't boast in that. We are, we are, we are proclaiming that we deserve to die, but Jesus did that for us. Both of those symbols are symbols of grace. Baptism is a mark that sets Christians apart. It's a personal reminder for what God has done. And you can't boast in being superior because you're baptised. Being baptised symbolises that you have died and been raised a new creation. Therefore, that there's something wrong with you that only God could fix. And that's, you know, we invite our friends and family to our baptisms. So, you know, it's a visual sign and a symbol that you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you. In that same message, we had a section about the, you know, the dangers of a sign. Um, and, and part of that was the analogy of a wedding ring. You know, um, you know wedding ring is a symbol that I'm married, you know, a symbol of devotion and commitment. And if I walk into the room and said, you know, I'm an amazing devoted husband, here's my ring, here's, here's my proof, and actually I'm treating my wife miserably, I'm, you know, I'm cheating on her, I'm not, I'm not doing all the things a husband should do, this, this sign is not, a, is not a symbol of a good marriage, is it? And, and equally, if I lost my wedding ring, I don't all of a sudden say, oh no, I'm not married. You know, it's, this, this is the sign of the deeper thing. Um, and and did, did you know you can buy wedding rings at the store? Of course you know that. If, if you buy a wedding ring at the store and you give it to someone, you're not married, are you? Like, it's, it's just a ring. It is, it's nothing. It's, it's when that ring is in combination with the vows, the declaration, the witnesses... There is more than goes on than just the symbol of the wedding ring. So yeah, there's a danger when the signs or rituals become more important than the thing it's meant to point to. And it's the same with baptism. In itself, it's a sign, just a sign. But what it points to is a greater reality. So what does it do? Nothing magical. It doesn't cleanse you from your sins. But it is an outward expression of a saving faith. It shows that you believe the gospel message of salvation and that you are telling the world in the way that Jesus has asked you to tell the world. 
you know, sometimes water is associated with washing and cleansing. But in this situation, our sins can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You know, the water is not magic. It's an outward expression of a saving faith. So we're not to believe that the act of baptism saves us. That would be us being saved by what we do. You know, we're to put our faith in the death of Jesus that saves us. Baptism is just the way that we're asked to celebrate and express that faith. So lastly, who should get baptised? And I'm going to start with the non-controversial view. Um, that basically everyone who believes Jesus died for their sins and wants to follow his teachings should get baptised. I don't know anyone who argues with that. This is what's described as believer's baptism. Someone who hears the gospel and responds with baptism. Um, And I love that story in Acts chapter 8 where we read of this Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip on the road travelling. And it said that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road... They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. I don't know how long they were travelling for. It might have been a couple of hours or something. But from, from that short travelling together and discussing the Bible and the Gospel and who this Jesus guy is, this guy says, yeah, this makes sense to me, and he is baptised that same day. They don't overcomplicate it. Obviously, in that point of history, in that part of the world, they, they had a much better background understanding of the Old Testament and what was going on. You know, there's much less mental shift than someone today who's never had anything to do with the Bible. So perhaps it's, it's a bit unreasonable to ask someone to get baptised the same day here in New Zealand who has no background knowledge of the Bible. But they didn't overcomplicate it, did they? I believe this, I should get baptised. It's not till around sort of 300 AD that we start seeing some church church writings where they're running teaching sessions and preparing believers for baptism. So this included things like creeds, um, outlining statements of faith, you know, making sure people believe Jesus died for their sins, you know, had, had all their, their understanding right of what they were signing up to. And this was kind of, you know, a, a couple of evening, I, I envisioned it as a couple of evening courses to make sure you know what you're getting into before baptism. Making sure that your converts understood the basics of the gospel and what they were placing their faith in. But all of that is to say that you know, anyone who believes the gospel should be baptised. And so most Christians agree up to this point um, that the next step is whether it's limited to just those believers who believe the gospel and understand it and can articulate it. And others, others would argue that it extends to the children or infants of children raised in Christian families. Um, you might have noticed a few weeks back we had our baby Nathan baptised. Um, I feel a little bit sorry for Graham and Sarah. Um, the weeks leading up to it, we sort of changed our mind. It seemed like every second day we said, no, nah, no, nah, let's go with the dedication. No, we'll baptise. But we got there in the end. Um, both Becca and myself kind of grew up with this idea that believer's baptism is what makes sense. If you don't know what you're believing and declaring, why would you get baptised? And it wasn't until yeah, Graham and Sarah challenged me to dig into it a bit more. It's not something that I've ever, you know, I've never had kids till now. It's never been a, a topical thing to dig into. But what I was quite surprised to find was what I, what I would describe as a, as a bad argument on both sides. That um, there's, there's a weakness in both positions, and it's definitely not something that anyone can be dogmatic about. Um, you know, it, it's a grey area, and we need to respect the different opinions and conclusions that people come to. 
it, it's another one of those situations where I'd love it if Jesus told us a bit more about it or if the Bible extended another 100 years or so. What we see, all the recorded baptisms in the book of Acts and the Gospels are what we would describe as you know, first-generation converts. You know, all these people previously believed something different. Then they heard the Gospel message and were convinced it was true. And in many of those counts, it says that their family or households also got baptised. It doesn't say how old those kids were or if they're old enough to understand or anything like that. But what, the other thing we also don't have is we have no accounts of what those baptised believers did with their kids 30 years later. You know, We don't know anyone, any second-generation baptisms or converts or, or what the deal was with those. So unfortunately, we can't point to a specific passage on this issue and say this is what we should do with the children of Christians. Although in saying that, luckily most, most Christians who take a stance on one side or the other also agree that this is an issue of secondary importance, that we can agree to disagree, and ultimately salvation is what Jesus did and not what we do. So, you know, if you're born into a Christian family and you're taught from a young age that Jesus died for your sins, that you're forgiven, with, forgiven by God, and graciously brought into the family of God. If that's what you believe growing up, you're in a very different boat than all of the people in the book of Acts who had a previous belief system to, and then converted to Christianity. You know, in the Old Testament, they circumcised eight-day-old eight boys, and I don't think they could articulate the co- covenant promises that they were symbolising then. You know, their, their parents were instructed to bring them up knowing God and instructing them in his ways. So it's not too far-fetched for Christians to welcome their kids into this new covenant family of God through baptism. And of course, you know, all Christians still need to make that decision to follow Jesus for themselves. We, we can't piggyback off the faith of our parents. But this is true even after you get baptised. You know, I got baptised as a teenager, and still every day after that I still have to choose to follow God. You know, being baptised doesn't, doesn't change that. When we had Nathan baptised, it wasn't us declaring that, that Nathan believes these things. You know, like, he's a baby, we don't know what he believes. But for, for us, what we were doing there is we were saying, you know, we, we're declaring what Jesus has done. We're saying, thank you, God, for sending your son to die in place of my child. Thank you that your promise of eternal life is, applies to all who believe in him. You know, and we claim these promises for our child and pray that he will make the decision to follow Jesus too. Not specifically that he'll choose to get baptised later in life, but if he decides we don't have a problem with double dipping, um, some people do. Yeah. But we pray that he'll daily choose to follow Jesus. That, that's more important whether he gets baptised again or, or chooses to agree with his first baptism. We pray that he will daily choose to follow Jesus and that when he makes mistakes and wanders away that he will continue to turn back to God. Yeah, cause, so baptism doesn't save you either way. Some people think that they need to get their kids baptised because you know, they're fearful that it's a requirement for salvation. And that's, that's not a good reason to baptise your kids. You know, we, we need to put our faith in what Jesus has done and we do our best to be obedient to what he calls us to do. But we don't claim that our decision to run water over our kids will save them or not. You know, that's, that's absurd. Same, same again with the arguments about you know, full immersion or sprinkling. Obviously, full immersion is a much better picture of going into the grave, of dying, being buried, raised again. But, you know, the amount of water or how you put it on your child, you know, our faith is in Jesus and what he has done and the meaning behind the symbol, not whether you use the right amount of litres of water or, you know. 
I don't think that's what Jesus is going to be getting hung up about. But I, do, I definitely do love the picture of that full immersion baptism. It's probably a bit rude to do to your kids, though. Um, I, I started to write out a bit of an argument, sort of detailing some of the stuff that convinced me to baptise my child. Um, but this is a long enough sermon as it is, and it's, it's not really the ideal format to sort of convince or engage with someone who might think differently. So, you know, if anyone's curious to, about getting your kid baptised, then, yeah, definitely come have a chat. The same with Graham and Sarah. Um, So just to summarise, you know, we've addressed these, these three questions. What is baptism? So it's a sacrament of the new covenant. You know, it's a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth. And what does it do? In itself, nothing. But it's the way that we're told to profess our faith. It's us publicly saying that you know, Jesus did all that was necessary for my salvation there on the cross. I'm saying I believe this in my heart, now I'm expressing it outwardly in the way that he commanded and who should get baptised? All who believe the good news that Jesus has died for their sins and trust in the promise that there is no more condemnation or punishment or distance with God. Anyone who trusts that what Jesus did was enough. And with a little asterisk, maybe your kids too. Um, so yeah, with that, with that said, if anyone hasn't been baptised but does believe what the Bible claims is true, then you know, reach out to Graham and Sarah and we'll definitely arrange a time for another baptism service. You know, we, we're not mind readers. We don't know what people are thinking. We don't know if you're keen or whether you have or haven't been baptised. You know, if you want to know more, get in touch. We'll be very keen to have a chat. And if, if you're on the fence about some of those claims about Jesus, you know, maybe you're not even convinced yet that this Jesus guy is real or that he did die for your sins or... You know, maybe it all just sounds too good to be true, or maybe it sounds crazy. Um, you know, if there's anything preventing you from trusting in Jesus and, and claiming these promises, then again, reach out to Graham and Sarah, or myself, or probably anyone here will be happy to have a chat with you. Um, yeah, if there's, if there's any barriers, we would love to chat and, and help you with what you're struggling with. Let's send them prayer. Lord, thank you for what you've done. And thank you that we don't need to rely on us being good enough and on us getting things right. Thank you that all we need to rely on is you and what you have done for us. Thank you for proving yourself trustworthy and for the promise of salvation for those who believe. We pray that you would bring more people to come to know you, whether that's here at Abide or at other churches. Lord, we, we pray that you will connect people who are searching with you. They may know your goodness and experience the freedom and rest that's only found in you. Amen.